Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, good whatever, wherever, however I find you, whether you be animal, vegetable or mineral. This is Alan Averill, this is Agitators Anonymous, this is episode 37. Damn it, Janet, how did we get so far, so near and yet so far? Well, episode 37. All right, let's get into it. Off the top, Instagram, Nemthianga underscore primordial if you want to follow me on the gram and see some of my ridiculous antics. Um, there's also some primordial stuff, some singing and the odd thing that goes on there. Um, and I'm trying to build my robot army, so please join the ranks. Patreon.com, Alan Averill, two capital A's. Um, I post demos, all sorts of odd things, bonus podcasts, this and that. Um, if you want to go and check it out, the show is sponsored by Hate Couture, H-A-T-E-C-O-U-T-U-R-E, 616.com. And if you use the promo code Alan, you will get free shipping. Um, what they have over there is all sorts of nasty and despicable T-shirts, um, tyrants and serial killers and Vlad the Impaler and all sorts of rotten heavy metal stuff that will upset your next of kin. So head over there and have a look. And also, metalblade.com, www.metalblade.com. We have a, well, we, yeah, I speak in the second person now. Me and my alter ego, Victor, we have a special deal with metalblade.com. Okay, I'm not going to start that. Um, 
but it's specifically for North America. So if you go back a podcast or two, you can find a bonus one about Dread Sovereign and there's a song at the end. Or else just search Nature is the Devil's Church and you may hear a song from the new Dread Sovereign. And if you like what you hear and you're from the North America, the USND, um, use the promo code AA Podcast and you will get 15% off. Well, there you go, huh? Can't say fairer than that. Well, you could, but, you know, that's the way things are now in the prison planet. So someone asked me, what's it like to release music in this period? Um, It's very strange because all you're really doing is um, you're a statistician. Well, that is if you pay attention and observe these things. You just watch numbers move up and down and go, oh, well, look, isn't it great? We got, uh, I don't know, with Dread Sovereign, we went from a few hundred people on Spotify to pushing up, I don't know, 8,000, heading up to 10,000 now monthly subscribers. Whoa, your YouTube numbers move, your this numbers move, your that numbers move. Um, You're sort of like the Count from Sesame Street. There's a modern reference for all you people who grew up before the internet. Um, yeah, so what you do, it's very strange. You you kind of have no real agency or purpose. It's not that different to releasing a record normally, like in the past, in the sense that you talk to people on Skype, you do interviews, you do the equivalent of the Zoom cast that I do on my own YouTube channel, that kind of thing. You talk to people about the meaning of the record. Um, most of the interviews at the moment have been heavily slanted to people asking me about the podcast and asking me about lockdown and about the situation that we're in because somehow that seems more um, pertinent than what kind of mic did you use for the bass drums or that kind of thing. Um, Not that anybody would really normally ask that, but you understand. Um, Of course, some people don't really get it. Somebody asked me, oh, what do you think will happen when Iron Maiden are too old to play festivals? And of course, I was in a bit of a cranky mood and I said, mate, you should be more worried that there won't be festivals. Not that Iron Maiden are too old. That's what you really should be worrying about. Oh, right. Anyway, that's a debate for another day. The point being that the nature of this situation is that all roads lead to Rome in that somehow eventually almost all discussions end up, um, especially in within the music industry, they end up in the realm of, well, will we ever get back out to play? So... Um, you know, I've I've had some rather complicated thoughts about this. I've been saying to people, I, I don't know if it's a if it's in petulance or whatever that that if if there's no more gigs, then I don't more make any more heavy metal. Um, I didn't say it looking to elicit a, a an oh no, don't please response from anybody. But that's kind of how I feel. A band like Dread Sovereign um, is designed for a hundred people to play in a basement scuzzy bar somewhere. Um, you know, and have shots with the audience afterwards and head down to the merch stand and hang out and get in the van the next day. Dread Sovereign is designed to be that functioning, dirty, scummy rock and roll experience. And without that, it's hard really to see how it makes any sense. It's not uh, something I spend, uh, you know, weeks of my life crafting in the studio. Um, I can understand for some people, some people are home birds in the sense that if you listen to the interview I did with Andy Sneap, for example, he will say that at a certain time in his life, he became just more interested in working in the studio. Um, He he didn't really enjoy the road that much. 
Now, I'm the complete opposite. I don't have the patience to sit. Uh, you know, I like being in the studio, but I'm not playing an instrument with Primordial. So I'm generally waiting around to do the singing and just observing what's going on and throwing in my odd, you know, poking a stick into the wheels as they go by, trying to upset the apple cart. Um, well, if the apple cart had wheels, I suppose it would have wheels. It's a cart. Anyway, um, so... It's different with Dread Sovereign in the sense that it's a rock and roll thing. We get in the rehearsal room, we shout at each other, have a beer, make each other laugh, and a song comes out at the end of it. With that agency and process gone, the human process to it, you'd have to wonder, is there, would it be, would there be any purpose in making that kind of music? Like I said, it's not, I'm not the guy from Winter Sun or something who spends apparently years crafting albums in the studio. I'd never heard them, so... Whatever, it's a, it's a rather odd reference for me to pull from my grey matter. But you understand what I mean in the sense that um, what's happened is, is that releasing a record feels like there's no movement, no agency and kind of a little bit no point because it doesn't feel as important as the prospect of the things that you're talking about. Now, does this make me an artist or not? That's what I've been sort of weighing with. Is Dread Sovereign art? I suppose it is. It is. Um, you know, there's certainly an artistic craft that goes into it, but it goes into it with the um, the angle, the design, the, the 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 furtive desire to go out on tour with it. And without that, then what is it really? Somebody said to me, oh, well, now you can concentrate on the next album. And I just was like, oh, my God, really? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think that I will just keep making records without any way to go and play them to the people who like them. And I think that we shouldn't be beggars. I'll come to this again, this word, beggars. I don't think we should be um, just kind of feeding on the crumbs that fall from the table uh, that allow us to scrabble around to try and um, establish 5, 10, 15, 20% of the life that we had. We should demand the full return of the life that we had. But I'll get into that. I'll get into that. That's what this podcast is going to be about. Um but yes, it's very strange to release music at this time and uh, I'm conflicted about it. I'll be perfectly honest with you. There are tour dates for Dread Sovereign at the end of next year. Will they happen? I don't know. Realistically, probably the chances of going on a tour that pulls 50 to 100, 125 people in a, you know, let's say if you're in a 400 room um, and you're filling the capacity to 20, 25%, realistically, that's probably more likely to be allowed to happen than for Primordial, where you are going to have to have that 500 people there, 600 people to make an economy of it, so to speak. Um, but if you can only fill a room to 25% cap, well, then you're going to need a huge room. And they don't really exist, nor does the economy exist to book them. Anyway, I digress. So some of you have asked me, why is the podcast not a little bit more political? Maybe even have asked me, you know, you're maybe you could be a little bit more cutting edge, I suppose, cutting maybe in your comments. I'm not sure if that's really what they expected. Certainly, a lot of people didn't expect the podcast to be quite as all over the place as it is in the sense that you don't quite know what you're going to get week to week. But this this episode, maybe the next one are going to be a little bit more serious. I'm going to really try and look at and examine um, where we are, um, because we're almost at the end of 2020 and now nine months into this pandemic. And this is episode 37. Um, 
about 10 episodes ago, I did an all, I did a, I told you so. And it seems beyond depressing to even start all over again from such a statement. But here we are after being told lockdown was for a few weeks to flatten the curve. And now we are nine months in. And tonight here in Dublin, um, on my way home, I got the news that, oh, the government has decided that we will close down again somewhere between Christmas and New Year's Eve. You're allowed to see your family, but they've decided that the danger of people being around other people on New Year's Eve is just too great. The reality is we are all facing variations on a theme of lockdown as we enter 2021. Um, it's coming in January and I think that there's no doubt about it. In certain areas of Europe, people are already in it and it's just going to roll over. It's going to roll through Christmas into New Year's Eve into January. So how did we end up here? This will most likely be um, the second last podcast of the year. Then maybe I will have a small break in January. But over these two podcasts, these two last podcasts, I want to mull over some of the questions that have bothered me. Maybe ask questions you've also been thinking about. Consider what the answers may be. Maybe ask the questions you've not thought of. Maybe I can instill or inspire or maybe annoy or irritate who knows but maybe prompt a little bit of examination um, because there's a lot to mull over in fact to be honest sometimes there's too much there's just simply too much and most people just shut down there are perhaps things maybe you've not thought about as for sure right now there seems absolutely no consensus anywhere among regular people what is or what isn't and what we are really do what we are really dealing with as i always say never put down to malice what you can to incompetence right and i tend to stick to that and the idea that the truth always resides in the gray area is more or less where i always find myself now it infuriates my friends on either side of the fence because they feel that i'm fence sitting but that's not really true um it is that the world is subject to chaos and therefore, in my opinion, it is often too complex to have grand narratives because it just simply is that. It is chaos. It is unforeseen um, circumstances that break, that break open society or break open culture or alter the path of culture or history. Um, to have one overarching storyline, I feel, is just too simple. I can openly admit one overarching storyline is too simple. And I think we do this because it's within our nature as human beings. Um, it's part of our hunter-gatherer past um, to try and explain the full moon, to call the god of the forest, to invoke the god of the forest to stop people leaving the herd, straying too far. Um, it was what we called the elements around us. We had zoomorphic deities. Um, and we attempted, even in our own way back then to try and explain the processes of the earth and i think that now you may think that that's ridiculous okay that's fair enough but i think that it's human nature to find an overarching storyline because it comforts us it helps us to try and understand to sense make um to draw a, a line between point a and point b and not get lost in between and i understand this completely personally i will submit I will submit to the idea that things are too chaotic. But I can openly admit, um, a few months ago, I went a bit feral. I stood on the edge of the ledge this year and looked into the abyss. And it looked back into me. 
Uh, what song is that from? Um, I looked into the abyss, as you could say, without being too melodramatic, as I'm sure many of you did, where nothing made any sense, robbed of agency, purpose and identity. It was very easy to become overcome with rage over all of this rage against malice, rage against incompetence. The feeling inside was the same regardless. Um, a friend of mine I play football told me, well, he made a Middle Eastern translation. I think it's from Arabic and it sounded quite beautiful or else he was mocking me. But he said, uh, what matter on the horizon, a zebra or a horse, if its silhouette is the same? Indeed, you can have that. Or maybe it's a mistranslation and he <laughs> is laughing at me somewhere. However, there is a point there. If you felt these overwhelming feelings of powerlessness, did it matter that the political overlords above you uh, meant these impositions with malice or incompetence if they made you feel the same, if they had the same outcome for your life? The feeling is the same. But as I stated before, when I was talking about the coming robot wars of next year and trying to be healthy for them, um, and if you'll allow me to be vaguely poetic, what good will this vessel of our body be in 2021 if we scupper it below the waterline and enter the new year taking on water, listing in deep waters far from the shore of sanity? Ah, he writes lyrics, don't you see? But you see what I mean. You see what I'm getting at. Um, and I admit that I was quite far from the shore. And I think I had to, you have to wade out there sometimes because um, it's, it's, you have to zoom out to try and get the bigger picture. So what I'm going to do is examine a whole bunch of sentences, theories, statements and observations that have been rattling around inside my skull, inside my grey matter for the last while. Some of them may be a little bit contentious, some maybe not. At the end of the day, look, hey, I'm just a singer in a heavy metal band trying to make sense of the things I cannot understand. I'm on, I'm on fire today. And we're going to try and remain impartial or at least attempt a little Occam's razor about it and try and make the most exacting and rational point to get to the heart of the issue. Now, I probably won't. And like I said, or will say, is that not for a moment would I, you know, not for a moment am I suggesting that there hasn't been um, a great upheaval in society. There hasn't been a pandemic that has killed 1.6 million people and thrown the world into... Um, this crisis. That's not really what I'm talking about. I'm not really talking about the pandemic. I'm not really talking about cases. I'm not really talking about the health aspects of this. I'm going to go across some of the some of the other opinions, some of the um, the peripheral discussions, and a few things that I think should be a little bit more center stage. So, how did we end up here? How did we end up in this situation after nine months? Our government seems to have done no preparation. They had nine months to plan for wave two, three, four. Um, we were told it was to flatten the curve for the first few weeks and people went along with it. They bought it. Um, there was a pulling together of society and I could feel it. You felt you were part of something. You felt you were part of trying to take on some great threat to society and people did pull together. And within that time frame, um, we did have time to make preparations in case there was going to we were going to return to this now as i said i did a few i told you so podcasts and if you listen to the old episodes of the podcast i did say that i thought we would be pretty much exactly where we are 
sadly, um, nine months down the line. In fact, I already made doomsday predictions of far longer than that, and I still would. But how did we end up here? Surely there could have been greater preparation. Because right now, it feels like high farce. It feels like high, high, high farce. Um, it feels like being in the middle of some sort of Ealing comedy from the 1950s. Um, so can it be that there is a grand design to all this or are we just fumbling in the dark? To consider this all a plan, some dark Machiavellian plot, I think is to give our dear leaders too much credit. Too much credit. The litmus test of this is my friends who don't spend all their time thinking about the whys and wherefores of this, who don't have the words great and reset rattling around in their grey matter. Um, and they all say the same thing. They all say, look, you know, fundamentally they're trying to do their best. But look, at they couldn't open, they couldn't organise a piss up in a brewery. They couldn't get you laid in a whorehouse or whatever. Um, and they're full of those kind of sentiments, which is that this is a botched response by a broken system. And I would add that it's a botched response by grifting cowards within a broken system. Um, let's really try and separate ourselves from the grand narratives we tell ourselves, because let's be clear, as human monkeys, we need a line in the sand. We search for the grand design in, in order to be able to try and make sense of life. So do we believe that our dear leaders are in on some vast Machiavellian plot? It would seem unlikely to me. It would seem unlikely to me. I know it's comforting, as I said, we need these grand narratives. We tell ourselves, um, it's clear as human monkeys, we need a line in the sand. We need something to work towards. And that's what is so um, discombobulating about this whole scenario is, is that there doesn't seem to be an end game. There doesn't seem to be a clear objective. There doesn't seem to be a here's the date when we take down all these signs and stickers everywhere and we release you all back into the wild and you can go about your lives once again. And so we've tried to sense make We've tried to make sense of this chaos um, because our lives are in free fall and they seem to have no purpose. There are massive flaws, of course, in this structure we've erected around ourselves. I often think about the banking collapse of 2008. The world economy crashed as we began to understand words like hedge fund, vulture capital. Um, the markets are complex. I can't pretend to understand them. But what was clear is that vast swathes of the political establishment didn't predict, didn't predict what was happening. And economies crashed. Austerity was imposed. We coped. We took the blow. We took it on the chin. But even our own ministers here didn't really seem to understand what was happening. The refinancing of the banks. And they waded into it in as best a way they could. Now, I do think the political culture has changed a bit since then. And there is more of what I sense is grifting cronyism. But maybe that's just because... The situation itself has become amplified like that for me. And that's what I see around me. Maybe it was always like that. But what was clear is that politicians and our systems do get taken by surprise. And maybe that's what happened. They were taken by surprise by this situation. Could it be, could it be that this situation is just that? A heady mix of political incompetence and our leaders are fumbling in the dark. But the thing that really worries me is how do we get out of it? How do, we, how do we extricate ourselves from this position? Um, the train has been heading in one way with pace out of the station now. How do, we, how do we stop it and 
move it back in the opposite direction? How do we even pull the brakes? This is the question. Do our political leaders and the cronyism of middle management who seem to be all enjoying their day in the sun, um, they're enjoying these press conferences. They're enjoying wielding power. I think people underestimate the nature of power. Power begats more power. That's what happens, and that's the nature of politics. Um, there are all of these middle management people who would have been quietly just working away in their offices who are now enjoying the limelight and enjoying, as I said, wielding like Emperor Nero in the stands with the thumb up and the thumb down, this almost Caesarian motive where they decide the fate of plebs by tier five, tier four, tier three, lock down this. You're going to lose your small business, but it's for the greater good. And so they're enjoying their day in the sun. They're enjoying telling people what to do. Um, do, they have the, do they have the humility to admit that they got this wrong? That they were scared into lockdown in the beginning? We all were. I mean, let's be honest. And now, and now, the West had nine months to prepare a proper response so as not to plunge society into an open prison again for the third and perhaps the fourth time in some countries. And, in my opinion, it's going to come again and again. And here we are. Rules A and B, they don't make sense. And the public see it. Has there been vast spikes in your local small bakery or your small businesses? Spikes across sports pitches where people need exercise for their mental health in gyms? Yet huge chain shops remain open. In the midst of this, in the midst of this, we still had our Black Friday, right? This horrible, greedy, narcissistic, vulgar day that turned into a weekend. This orgiastic celebration of all the rotten things within our system. Um, we swear we still were allowed that, right? Retain some form of humanity for their mental health. Nope, we'll close that. What makes sense anymore? Um, no gigs. No comedy, no theatre. Certainly, we've seen what the arts represents to this, to this situation. And the answer is absolutely nothing. All it is is a, a tick on the budget. Now, I don't know, maybe it's been more open in your country, in your city. Maybe they've made efforts to try and give people something. Our Minister for Arts has said there will be 50 folk shows where 50 people will attend. No alcohol, distanced, masks, of course, um, and some nonsense filtration system idea, which seems to make absolutely no sense because other countries were trying to do these gigs regardless anyway of whether they had some plasma filtration system. Why is that needed to justify this idea? And when do we get to plug in our instruments? When do we get to make noise, to make art, to be creative? Again, it's this idea that the only process of self-expression now has to be validated by the state. I mean, as my friend from Russia who grew up under communism said, even in communist times, we still had art. We still had artistic expression. Now you had to find your meaning in it sometimes, but it was still there. And here we are nine months in. It's very possible that no one will stand on a stage in Ireland for 18 months, maybe, maybe two years. No one will have expressed themselves. Oh, but can't you do it online? Can't you do it online? There's an economy online. Really? Really? Is that all that it means? Art is just becoming content, a content creator. I, for one, don't wish to beg, don't wish to be a beggar. 
how can it be that all of these things will remain closed? And they'll just fling money at it. Furlough after furlough, money after money, bad money after bad money. Um, and things will remain closed. And how is it that the state is now involved in the minutia of your day to day? Should you hug your parents when you go and see them? Don't forget, you are not allowed to bury your dead while others protested with approval from the same state that said you could not visit your elderly in their care home. I know people who could not bury their dead because of this and then had to see people protesting with impunity. Now, that's a, maybe a different question, a different a different podcast, a difficult podcast to have. But again, what makes sense? Maybe the more I analyze it and the more I think about it, it is indeed that a botched response by a broken system that now cannot turn itself around, ruled by a political class who don't know what to do and lack the humility and humanity to take it on the chin and admit, and admit this was not the correct thing to do. At least in my opinion, it is not. At least not, at least not now. And so maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's just become high farce. It's become high farce. Because to turn this, well, to pull the brakes on this train and move it back in the other direction would admit that you were wrong. It would admit to all those people that, oh, you should have been allowed to go and see your elderly mother in the care home who's been alone for the last eight or nine months without seeing her family. You could have buried your dead. You could go to your religious service. You should have been allowed to. So is it surprising that is it really surprising, considering everybody is, of course, on the on the re-election campaign, that they, they can't admit, that they can't turn the train around? Yet, so we are sold a form of cognitive dissonance as, as a religion. Um, the Cambridge English Dictionary says, cognitive dissonance occurs when a person holds contradictory beliefs, ideas or values and is typically experienced as psychological stress when they participate in an action that goes against one or more of them. A state in which there is a difference between your experiences or behaviour and your beliefs or what you see with your own eyes. I.e. we are told one thing and we appear to see the contrary. In a way, it's exactly like what happened in communist Russia in the 1970s or the 1980s. You were told how well the economy was doing, but yet then you queued for four hours for bread. It was part of the game. It was part of the propaganda. It was part of everyday life that you had to accept that, as we call it, the Orwellian line, the Orwellian state line, was not what you saw with your own eyes. No, I'm not for a moment suggesting that our situation is similar to that of the plight of people maybe in a satellite Soviet state in 1981, not for a moment. But, you know, here's, for example, a very real thing. I have friends who support the lockdown and I say to them, but senior, senior oncologists and physicians, doctors of all sorts say that a tsunami of cancer is coming. Apparently in the UK, there are 4.4 million checks screens that have not happened. So that means the NHS is 4.4 million screens down on the previous year, if I am not incorrect. And yes, I did look that up. Um, so where does that leave us? A tsunami of cancer, they say, is coming in 12 to 36 months. And it, as I said, it has in fact started already. And these, and these are deaths that are caused by essentially lockdown. 
And I haven't even begun with suicide, child abuse, rape, mental health. And you put these irrefutable arguments forward and people shuffle uncomfortably and say, yeah, but do you want the elderly to die? And as I said before in the previous podcast, just because you have an opinion that is contrary to one doesn't mean that you immediately hold the furthest opposite outlying opinion. That's not remotely. That's not the way rational debate works. Now, I understand that's the way things work in 2020 when all you want to do is win an argument or on Twitter or whatever. But claiming that, of course, if you oppose or have questions about the strictest form of lockdown, oh, you want the elderly to die? No, that's those. Those are not the only two options that are available to people. How is that an argument? No one does. Yet faced with the facts, people emotionally double down because the alternative means you're drifting at sea. The alternative means you're um, you somehow don't care about, as I said, the lives of the elderly. But yet when you show someone or say to somebody something simple like, well, what about these other lives? Don't they matter? Yeah, I don't know. And also somehow many of the people screaming at you about the lives of the elderly are the same people who would have been, for example, pro-abortion. So when does a life start? I don't know. It's it's an argument that is a Pandora's box of all sorts of all sorts of vile to open. And I'm not going to open it. It's one of those things that I sort of sit on the fence about in a way. I voted for um, women's rights in this, you know, to repeal the eighth or whatever you want to call it. But I do find it an interesting intellectual argument, an intellectual rigor to consider the seeming paradox. I'm getting in the weeds now, getting in the weeds now. So the thing is that personally, I never had any faith in the institutions to lose. I never did. That's the difference. Losing one's faith is a complex thing. People want to hold on to the fact that they think those above them have their best interests at heart. I never did. Maybe it's because I was always a cynic, always a pessimist, or read too much about history to really trust this class. Um, and we can see how the political and media class have framed anyone question, questioning the lockdown as somehow on the far right. I mean, how did that happen? Very early on in this whole situation, the new left, and I'll call them that because, like I said many times before, the old left I understand and would have sided with. The new left... The identitarian left, I don't really understand. You know, that's we can admit that. Um, we, me and Victor, can admit that. But why did they, in the beginning of this, come down on the side of very strict measures? This is really interesting. It's about class. Most people don't talk about that anymore. But I think it is about class. The narrative about lockdown has been told by the new media class or the tech middle class, the pyjama party. If you can go to work in your pyjamas, that's not to be flippant, then you don't get to lecture people who have to work with their hands and stand around in the cold and do actual, quote-unquote, real work. There's a new technocratic middle class who clearly, to me, hate the working class. They see them as bigots, uneducated, simpletons. They freelance from home. They have an economy. Lockdown and staying inside even suits them somehow. Luxury hermits is what they were being called in the press who code game and get food delivered they certainly aren't the migrants paid 10 euro an hour to deliver that food or the working class mom packing the food in the warehouse 
it seems clear to me that they have no real understanding of the real world in the sense cosseted in their tech bubble they're also on all the platforms all the social media platforms they can wade in and out of any mob online on Twitter they tell the world how it should be yet the fact is that working class people need to work maybe they have small businesses that have been built up over the years that are now going to the wall I mean my own band Primordial could be seen as a small business that is now going to the wall we built it over 29 years and now in nine months it is, you could say, going to the wall. So, you know, I have skin in this game. We don't all have the luxury of being able to live and work from the couch. Yet argue this with people and they still don't really budge. They still don't really budge. Why is that? It's because people are selfish and they can only frame this narrative to how it affects them. And until these measures bump up against them, they're unlikely to make a fuss. And while the state furloughs companies and pays people weekly from, for hanging in the balance and keeps the wolf from the door, they will ignore the human consequence of what these things mean. It's sort of human nature and it speaks to the narcissistic element of modern social media, the things that have been inculcated within us over the last decade. The, I suppose, the I'm all right Jackism. I have my, as I said, you know, and I keep using this expression because I kind of like it luxury hermit lifestyle I can survive I can survive by being a freelance tech person um, and so be damned the plumbers be damned the taxi drivers and the even the hospital workers and the whoever else and so they can ignore the human consequences but I'll tell you a story in 1986 my father um, was so moved by the scenes of famine in Ethiopia he went to work there to help with the transport infrastructure of the country so they could move food around. It's one of the things I'm most proud of um, that he did. It showed uh, character and humanity. All weekend, for some reason, I spent reading articles by relatively non-partisan media outlets about how lockdown is affecting the third world, i.e. can't farm today, can't eat tomorrow. And the head of the World Food Programme food program says 270 million yeah, a million people are potentially on the brink of starvation or heading that way. Because of what? Because of lockdown. Poor countries in the third world don't have the luxury of furlough or throwing money at it all or, you know, giving out the most generous budget in history. And Ireland wouldn't have been able to do that in the past, but yet we seem to have forgotten that past. And what does that mean? So if I were to frame the argument like many people in the West do about other things, I would say... Black Lives Matter, right? Yes, of course they do. So surely the poorest black lives on the planet matter also. Yeah, of course they do. So therefore, lockdown is racist? Hmm. Luxury hermit crabs shuffle their... Well, they don't have feet, do they? They have little claws, I suppose. Uh, uncomfortably when I frame the debate like this. Now, I'm just fighting fire with fire because that's the way many of those things would have been framed towards me. Yeah, but uh, I enjoy baking all day and gaming and, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, smoke a little weed, walk the dog, uh, you know, etc., etc. Did you have to bring up famine and starvation? Yeah, I did. I did have to. And maybe that's the difference. This new middle class don't really, they aren't really concerned with those things. People don't like the word class anymore, but it's clearly a class issue. And the media are complicit in this, it would seem to me. 
Journalists once upon a time held power to account. That was the job of journalists. And now, in Ireland at least, nothing. Dumb stories about people caught boozing with silly taglines, caught on the hops, and beer we go again, etc, etc. Even all the political parties are lined up in a row, so afraid of jeopardy and risk to break rank and question the morality of plunging people into poverty. They say three million people in the UK are about to be plunged below the poverty line. Like, where is the money going to be paid back from? But surely the people. It's not going to just come from nowhere. So how will that be? Will it be that this might be universal basic income? But then where do you spend your money? You may only have to you may only be able to spend your money in the um, in the pharmacy of the state. Speaking of pharmacy, we place our freedom in the hands of big pharma. Hmm. In North America, the biggest cause of, for death, the biggest cause of death, a great album, um, for people under 50 is opioids. And who made those? And what structure prescribed them to people? Hmm. The same structure that we're now hedging our freedom, our entire society's freedom on. And yet to question that would make me an anti-viser. I'm not sure if I can even say the word properly. How can that be? How can it be that we're not able to ask questions in a modern society to kind of put your hand up and go, uh, I need a, I'm not so sure about that. Can I ask a question about that? No, you can't. That will make you a anti this, anti that, anti the other. But you already see the noises coming from our political class and the medical structure that serves them and dines at the same table. Well, the V scene won't protect everybody and there are new strains uh, so maybe we need to keep up social distancing and masks, the Western hijab, and uh, watch my lips. In six months, we'll be sold a line. Watch my lips. Who said that? We will be sold a line. Well, isn't society better and safer like this? Isn't it somehow better? Maybe they begin to row in normal flu deaths. Maybe they begin to row in. Maybe there's another strain. Maybe... There's something else coming in. And how do we deal with this? Um, what I'm trying to say is, is there a way out of this? Or is it just never endless rolling lockdown? How do we extricate ourselves from the situation? Because it's clear to me that this is, we set out our stall. This is how we react now. This is how we react to um, a virus. And so when the next one comes, we're surely going to have to do the same thing or else the murmurings on the street will be that the state doesn't care. Um, how are we going to save face from this situation but just keep ploughing the same furrow? Um, now, when I started the podcast, if you go back, I discussed biometric health passports in the beginning. Freedom passes to go with your freedom fries that we must have in order to take part in society. And this has all sorts of implications for human rights and civil liberties, doesn't it? Yeah, but Alan, shh, you know, like, oh, ugh. and anyone protesting this is now framed as being from the far right. Hmm. Or at least that's what the media are suggesting. And if you put the if you put that in the context of the polarization of modern society, where racism is everywhere, endemic, systemic, then how easy to portray anyone dissenting as on the far right? Yet shouldn't we have questions about our civil liberties? Wasn't that part of the original Martin Luther King deal? 
again, how do we end up here where just questioning orthodoxy frames you instantly as one thing or the other? Hey, I have a question about um, about the infringement of our civil liberties, of personal sovereignty. Um, no, shut up now. No dissent. We set out our stall to deal with this emergency in such a way that to not do the same would with whatever the next strain or emergency would seem like we don't care about those potential debts, right? As I stated before, do we ever return to zero? Do the social distancing posters and placards ever get taken down? Do we ever go back to zero? As I keep saying, and I'm still not going to sing that George Michael song, I may, I might do in the last episode, I might do Careless Whisper, but you're never going to dance again. You're not going to dance with a stranger until it goes to zero. All those things you ain't going to see your local football team, your mom isn't going to yoga in the morning, you're not going to a gig the way you're used to, you're not going to see that comedian, you're not going to that art exhibition, you're not going to those things because they don't happen until, unless they're in zero. And I don't want to be a beggar. I don't want to be a beggar. I don't want to beg to have, oh, can we please have a gig to 50 people all distanced in masks with our plasma guns and our this and that and the other. I don't want to be a beggar. We live in a democratic society. We live in a democratic Western society. We have justifiable, um, we have justifiable aspirations, dreams that living in Western society or any society allow you to have. We're allowed goals. We're allowed to achieve, to achieve, to flourish, to travel, to create, to be human with each other. I've been trying to frame this situation differently now for months and some people get it, some people don't. But we have human rights, right? We have civil liberties. It is your immutable and alienable right to gather and sing and dance or protest or to travel the world and see other cultures, to grow your business, to hug and love who you wish. As I said before, in terms of rolling lockdown, you don't get to dance with that stranger. Now, as some of you may go, oh, he made a comment about people protesting earlier. Now, was it me who set the terms of lockdown? that other people broke. I think it is your immovable right to protest if you feel so moved. Of course it is. But let that sink in and consider any metaphor you want on those terms. Um, unless we move to zero, these don't happen. And when I ask my friends who are far less skeptical than me, do we ever move to zero? They often shrug, shuffle uncomfortably. No, no, I, I don't think we do. So how do we end up here being beggars being allowed a window to see your loved ones, begging to be allowed to try and hold a distance gig or show or show to allow some humanity back, people burying their loved ones on Zoom, um, distanced in the church. We've all seen those videos. How do we allow people to have some humanity back after this? Isn't sovereignty what people fought wars over? As I've been saying to people, if you couldn't tell me one moment in the history of our civilization and culture where the people of that nation, city, state had their freedoms taken from them or handed them over as you wish if you want to be pedantic about the argument and had them returned in one piece, I'd like to know it. As I think this is a totally naive misreading of power and politics. It doesn't work like that. Now, very well, it could turn out that in nine six months this is all forgotten another speed bump on the road of human history and we're allowed back out of the pen to human with other animals and you can poke me in the ribs at a festival and hand me a beer and say yeah see you were wrong it was just a bit of a fuck up maybe so and here's the thing i hope so i don't want to be the 
the I told you so guy. Oh, no, I don't even want to be 10% right. I want to be played by my own algorithm. I want to be played by my own rage and my own feelings of hopelessness and that I lost my own small business and my agency and purpose and identity and all these things. I want to be wrong about all that. I'm just asking questions. Um, I want this to only be a fuck up, a bungled up. We fumbled the ball, got scared and backed ourselves into a corner. That's what humans do, right? Yet if this is true, how the hell do we get out of the corner? How do we turn the train? How do we pull the brakes and move the train slowly backwards? So let's discuss this. We need to ask questions. If this is not a botched response and it's not just fumbling in the dark, what is this? What could it be? What are some people saying it is? Now, the next podcast, I'm going to try and go through some of those things. Otherwise, this podcast is going to end up being an hour and 20 minutes. I've been rambling. I've been rambling. And like I said, I'm just a singer in a heavy metal band, right? That's my caveat. These are my questions off the top of my head um, about the situa situation that we're in. Because it seems dire and dangerous to me. And like I said, how do we back ourselves out of this corner? How do we back ourselves out of this situation and return to some form of humanity? Food for thought, or maybe I'm an idiot. Or maybe I'm on the money. Who knows? Agitators Anonymous, episode 37 is a head scratcher. Um, it's a head scratcher, my friends. And with one more episode to go, I can only hope we're sailing into calmer waters in 2021. But something tells me maybe not, maybe not. Anyway, anyway. Episode 37, this is Alan Averill, over and out. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>